Welcome to the Agile Wire, where professional scrum trainers Jeff Boobles and Jeff Molesky discuss agile topics. Now, here are your hosts, Jeff Boobles and Jeff Molesky. <laughs> Gentlemen, good evening. How are you guys doing? Good. Yeah, uh, good. We're uh, coming off a weekend. Nice, nice long how, weekend, and uh, it's Monday. How was the weekend? Uh, for me, good. I uh, coached my last, the last flag football game of the season for padded flag football for my kids, and so that was fun. Nice. Uh, goes fast, but uh, I love always, I always talk about it on our podcast, like the similarities from coaching, you know, youth sports versus coaching, uh, you know, teams and individuals and organizations, and uh, there's just so many parallels. Oh, absolutely. What about you, uh, Mr. Maleski? Uh, just coming off a holiday with uh, my, my brother-in-law and his family came in from Australia. So we took him on a tour of the U.S. Uh, we went oh, wow. to New York State, saw Niagara Falls, down to uh, Nevada, saw Las Vegas, over to uh, Arizona for the Grand Canyon, back home to Wisconsin. So just dropped them off last week. And then my um, aunt-in-law, we just dropped her off at um, Chicago yesterday. So she's flying back to India. So um, like had nine people in this house and now we're down to three people. So back to uh, a good level of population here. Oh, that's a packed week. Yeah, it was rough. And like kids, man, I'm allergic to kids and I had a bunch of them in my house and it was just crazy town. <laughs> uh, then you're here with two dads. This is going to be a good talk. I've got three. <laughs> How are you? What did you do this weekend, Sunday? Absolutely nothing. I still had uh, some remnants of the jet lag coming back from Boston. Uh, that week was packed as well. You know, the face-to-face, going to Atlanta, do some workshops over there, explore the city, explore the market. There was quite some things to do. But unfortunately, I have this annoying issue where due to my kids, I can tell, I have my biological clock. And even though I'm on the other side of the world and with a jet lag, I still wake up at 6 a.m. Dutch time. So that did not help me. So I was uh, recovering from that. You know, and that's um, it's it's a it's fun to see how that how such a jet lag and the and the being deprived of sleep how that tends to work on your overall feelings. And you know, that's that's a nice segue into the topic of today: that sense of psychological safety in in the work environment. So if I'm deprived like this of sleep and having that jet lag, I definitely feel less safe. At work, at least to be open about uh, about stuff, maybe more emotional. That's that's a, that's a better word. Not necessarily. Maybe triggered uh, more too, right? Like oh you know, yeah, small things that you would let go or you know you know give people space or empathy on. You you don't because you're you're in that deprived sleep state, right? So that absolutely, yeah. But the, the same with you guys with your um, coaching with their football coaching. Same thing. You need a lot of psychological safety there to properly work as a team. I know. I mean, look at um, the, the PSM one exercise where people define what brings up what makes a great team. Psychological safety. I know, at least in mine, is usually one of the biggest ones coming back. How was that with your courses? Yeah, I think it's a it's a big part. It's a hard. You know, it's an easy thing to talk about. It's a harder thing to do in practice. Mm. And so I find that. Um, we talk about it in the classes. People are like, yeah, yeah, I agree with that. No one's going to tell you they don't agree with it. We talk about it from a classroom setting. But then you get into certain spaces and you can definitely see it's not there. And it can manifest itself in many different ways. Like maybe the team makes a small change to the process and then all of a sudden there's people outside the team that are that are debating that or 
wanting them to switch that or judge to conclusions. Like those are things that I see often. Or um, there could be something like, I don't know, maybe people just won't give feedback. The the meeting after the meeting is a very common thing that we see here in the U.S. So like we have a meeting, everyone's like, yep, we're good. And then five minutes later, everyone's like, hop on a call. Let's talk about that. And like, that's where we give the real feedback, but only when certain people in the room. Um, so I don't know. Those are all practices that I would say, like, you know, they're good things to start to think about avoiding and uh, try to give that feedback in the moment. And maybe there's there's definitely cases like in a mentoring situation, like we have a meeting. I always do a meeting after a meeting in those cases with like scrum masters or coaches that I'm working with or product owners. But that's more to teach them like meta level what I was doing when I was facilitating. It's more about that than dealing with a conflict that wasn't addressed inside the team, you know, or inside of the event or whatever we were just doing. What's that the reluctance to speak up about this in the actual event? Why well, have even more waste afterward? So we're not Dutch here. We are we are in Midwest nice. Like we have this thing here in the sun, in the Midwest of the United States where uh, we don't we talk very kindly and nicely to people when they're we're face to face, and then when they're not there, we don't. We maybe don't say that, or we don't feel that way. Um, we have a hard time giving tough feedback. I think we, for the most part, a lot of people really struggle with conflict. Uh, they don't grow up seeing it. They don't know how to manage it, and so it's it's a learning. It can be a learning. Um, curve definitely even for adults of how to deal with conflict i see that often what do you think jeff do you see that same thing or do you i mean you 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 have your family here from india right like just a few days ago like how do they deal with it diff- conflict differently than we deal with it here in wisconsin yeah i was i was actually just thinking about this last night if you want to see like the worst in humanity go to the departure area at the international airport because <laughs> like and and i'm only being half half cynical when i say this but like Different cultures have different values and they interpret interactions in a very different way. And all of a sudden at the, you know, I'll, I'll speak for Chicago International Airport, right? Like we were, my family was flying out on Emirates. Um, they're going going to, to um, India. And so a lot of Indian individuals there and they just have a very different culture. Like they're very comfortable getting up close to each other, right? There isn't there isn't that like safe space between bodies, all right? And that's just part of the culture. Um, I would, and again, I'm making I'm making broad brush, so I don't want to trigger anybody with some of these statements. I would say they're probably uh, more apt. Apt isn't the right word. Uh, almost aggressive with the way that like they move in and they will go after something. Um, but that's just part of the, the, again, the culture, like when there's not abundance, like you have to be, um, selfish is the word that comes to mind, but it's not like a, a mean type of selfish. It's like, this is my opportunity. If I don't go after this, nobody's going to just hand it to me. Right. Um, and so there's just this, this stirring pool of these different ideas, this diversity. And I think that's like, there's, there's pros and cons to that. Now, bring that into the workspace. And all of a sudden we talk about diversity. We want diversity of, of, of uh, opinions, perspective, mindsets, and all of that. Culture is certainly certainly part of that. But to what we've been talking about with psychological safety is if we don't have a safe space, we might jump to conclusions with the way that people are behaving. Um, Jeff, you were talking about you know that, that Midwestern nice. Um, just wanted to clarify a little bit. It's not necessarily two-faced, which I think we could have interpreted like being nice to somebody in person, but then going and talking shit behind their back. Like it's not, it's not that. It's just we're not very conflict prone, right? We're very accommodating in, in the way that we approach things. And that's very different than an East or a West Coast, even in the US, right? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you get into a retro here in the Midwest, like you really got to dig to and ask a bunch of questions and give space for people to like sit with a conflict or deal with a conflict. Um, and it's it's not going to be like I don't know. It's just so much more direct if you do a retro in the East Coast or the West Coast. Oh so, yeah, absolutely. Sure, you know, I, how is it? I, I guess I only heard here from other people. I've never been in a retro with uh, with Dutch people, but I just under the persona from the that you hear is that very direct, right? Like that's I would assume that you would have a lot of authentic conversations. This might be a potential culture shock coming up. Absolutely, you know, it, it, I do think it's very interesting to hear about the, the gap between both of you. For instance, um, dealing with different cultures, we want to have psychological safety. We want to be able to bring our whole selves to the workspace, yet we do not want to go into conflict. And therefore, we are enabling ourselves to not to bring that whole self and uh, and to minimize the psychological safety. So what could we what should we be doing in getting a step further? I mean, if you would participate in a Dutch retrospective, a very blunt, direct um, outspoken Dutch meeting, they'll say anything what they think at that point, not to mean, uh, not to be demeaning or not to be mean in general, but they, there is just no discussion, no debate, no difference in interpretation possible. They will be direct. If they think you suck, or at least your work sucks or your behavior sucks, they will tell you. Yeah, I think one thing that definitely helps is having a shared goal, right? So if we're all just kind of working as individuals, but you suck, it's like, I can just deal with that. And it doesn't really matter. Like it doesn't really affect me that much. So shared goal, and then some like accountability towards that goal. And then I I think those things help uh, as one thing. Also getting to know people as individuals is another thing that I I tend to do. And so just getting to know them, starting off with like a check-in and having something be more personal and just different events or meetings, not just the retro, but that's something that I've I've done. I mean, it's actually funny in the virtual world here, there's been times where we get on and like, you're like, how do we work with these certain people? Because like they, their audio doesn't work. We can't, their cameras don't work. They, they can't even, how do we communicate? Like if we can't get by that barrier, then we can't even, how we can have conflict. So it's like making sure people have good audio, good video, they can talk, they feel okay to talk. And once you get that started, then I think just, you know, making sure everybody's talking early and often in a meeting and make sure it's focused on the problem and not on an individual. And so one thing that I talk about too a lot with teams as I'm coaching them is like, what words are we using? So if we use pronouns like I, uh, you, uh, instead of like us and, you know, things like that are our, uh, like more team ownership, like uh, pronouns, that definitely changes the conversation. When it's our problem versus it's your problem, the testing team isn't getting this done, the developers aren't doing this. When we start talking about people in that kind of respect and not like we as a team aren't delivering, how could we get faster? Like we just have these big handoffs, like that would be a different way to phrase that question. Um and, I, and it makes a big difference, I think, of how people look at it and how they uh, look at that problem. Um, one tactical thing and we've got from Bob Gallen, who was on our podcast not too long ago, and he was talking about his book, uh, Badass Agile Coaching. And when he has conflict, he uh, oftentimes takes it, writes it on a board or someplace visual, and then stands both people so that they're looking at the problem and not looking at each other. So then the conflict doesn't go between the two people. It's like both of us looking forward at the problem. It's simple. You think, oh, that wouldn't make much of a difference. But in practice, as I've tried, I've applied it a few different times, like it does make a difference. It definitely level sets the conflict level and the tension level um, 
when when there is something that's that's kind of hot to talk about. Yeah, one one other thing I want to add in there and, and kind of make it explicit, like I think it was uh, implicit in a lot of what you were just saying there, Jeff, but really focusing on uh, attacking problems and not people, right? Like it, it's not a, a person who is the problem, it's the behavior that is being displayed that's the problem. And so if we can decouple the, the behavior from the person, um, I, I think we're going to have a lot more productive conversation about ways to remedy the issue because it's no longer Jeff Boobles is the problem. It's, hey, Jeff, when you're late to the daily scrum, here's the issues that, that come out of it or the, the dysfunction that we're seeing. How can we have how can we rectify this situation? How can we change that behavior? And for that, I always try to work with the, the coin feedback method. So connect, ask people. I, I, I have some observ observations that I want to run by. Is now a good moment? Or maybe go into a different moment? Or do you want to go outside of the office? Or, you know, maybe someone is just not in the right mindset at that point in time. So connect with them. Mm -hmm. Make sure that people are getting into the right mindset. So share the observations, as you guys both mentioned. And it has this and this impact, even though it might be behavior or whatsoever. And the end for next uh, next steps. Do you share my observations? Do you agree with them? Do you need my help? Um, you know, maybe something's going on at home. Maybe they have some personal things going on that they are not necessarily comfortable with sharing directly. But by lowering that threshold to share that stuff, uh, that brings you in a whole different realm of accepting feedback or or talking about it. I know um, for us as scrum masters, assuming that you guys work as scrum masters as well. Uh, and coaches leading by example is a major part of it too. I mean, I, how do you approach, how do you set that stage? How do you lead by example? Yeah. I, well, I'll go into one more tactical thing that we get into lead by example, but uh, one more thing that um, we got from Lisa Atkins when we had her on the podcast was um, like, talk with people about how you want it to be when there's conflict before there's conflict. Like when you're starting an engagement or starting working with a team, like, hey, how do we want this to be when, when we have a conflict? So, you know, some people will be like, well, I really struggle with like getting direct feedback because like I worry that I'm going to get fired or I worry about my security here in this organization. So if you tell me that I'm safe from that standpoint, but we need to get better like that, then I'll be I'll be good, you know, or um, if you don't wait, you know, some people are like, tell it to me in the moment. I don't care who's around. Or some people are like, uh, wait till after the meeting. I'd rather just, it just be us when we talk about it. Um, I don't want to be embarrassed in front of others or something like that when you give, have to give me tough feedback. So there, I think that's great. And then if you say, well, you know, this is what you said and now I'm living that. I, I think that's one way that you can be connecting with them, right? Having that conversation first and then doing it is a great way to connect. Um, and I think you can actually use that as a relationship builder instead of something that tears down your relationship um, if it's done done well. Um, yeah, so I think that's another one. I, I definitely do that more in my, like, when I'm coaching through certain roles, maybe not with everybody, like, as a practical, like, as an agile coach or an advisor for an organization. But um, but I think as any leader that's out there that has people that report up to them, like, that'd be a great conversation to have with them. Uh, like, how do you want to be when it's tough? What is it that you really want here? How can I help you do that? Like, I think those would be great conversations to build some kind of shared ownership and then, like, have you help, that'll help you with conflict and feedback and things like that into the future. Speaking of leadership, do you see any differences there um, in the U.S.? Like, is it harder to speak up about these kind of things the, the higher you get in into the chain? I think every organization is different. You know, some have a culture where it's really, it's accepted, it's the norm. 
Um, some organizations don't where it's very political. Like it's hard to go up one level inside of the organization and have a conversation. Like you need to talk to your manager before you do that. Other ones, it's like, go talk to the C-suite. The door's always open. Walk in. So I can't say that it's a one way or the other inside the U.S. I, th- I think it's very organization specific. Right. It's It's really anecdotal, but I feel like it has more to do with the size of the organization um, than it does yeah. the, the the location. Um, in a smaller group, you're, I think almost by definition, you feel more comfortable, more secure in a smaller group of individuals than you do in a larger group of individuals. Uh, and so if you're going to feel more secure with that smaller group of individuals, you're going to feel more uh, uh, safe to vocalize anything that you want to talk about in that way. And the larger the group gets the the less safety there is there. So I think it, t- to me, again, anecdotally is at the smaller organizations that I've worked with in the past, there was a lot more openness and transparency. I can think of a lot of great examples of that. Um, like back to our Centaire days when Jeff and I worked together, um, even at Acorns, um, there's this, this really great story that, you know, during the pandemic, somebody had, um, spray painted uh something to the effect of silence is violence and noah you've got to speak so Noah is the, the the ceo of the company um and at an, a company all hands like he gave some really uh a passionate feedback on that topic i don't want to you know say what, exactly what he said but it was very clear that he gave a damn about what had happened he gave a damn about the employees and he was very comfortable speaking with his emotion um and how he felt about it and there was a great dialogue you know from n- not that there's tears and I don't want to paint it as a tear but like new junior software developers were giving feedback to the president uh, or the CEO of the company and and like that was fine but I don't think I would see that at a 5000 person company or a 1000 person company or something like that so I do think that that size has something to do with or is a component of that conversation well, I'll say that I think culture follows structure. And so if you want a culture of openness and bringing your whole self to work, then you need to put structures in place that allow for that. So when we were at that one company I mentioned, Centaire, every Friday, there was a 15-minute call with everybody in the organization. And you could ask any – leadership would give an update of like what was happening from the company level, maybe five minutes or something. And then anybody could ask any question they wanted to. You could just unmute post it and then the leadership would deal with the question and everybody got to hear the answer. So it was like an open forum every week. So the rapid feedback loop in that it's weekly, not like monthly or quarterly. Um, and that like they had to think about stuff on the spot. I think that gives you transparency of like, yeah, you can ask the question here or you can come to my office. Like we want these things and they never shut people down for like asking a question. They might be like, we need to think about that one or like, we'll get back to you on it and stuff like that. They may have deferred or tabled it at times, but they didn't. And most of the time they did deal with it. Um, and so just kind of brought that up as a, you know, that's the culture here. Like we have transparency and we deal with issues when they come up. So I don't know, like, what are your thoughts, Jeff? Like, I, I think those are certain structures you can put in place, even when you're big to help promote that level of, um, collaboration and divide, put down those walls, you know, the silos that tended to grow up. Um, yeah, I was actually going to ask Sundra for, for your perspective on it. Like, you know, as we're having this conversation, it started with like, Hey, is this a culture thing? It made to Jeff's point, is it a structure thing? What, what is, what is your perspective? What are your observations? I think in many cases it's, it's a wild growth as well. You know, same as with the question, how do we define self-management organizations tend to forget to think about what's, What's our ideal culture? How do we want this to to thrive? Where do we want to be? What kind of place? Or 
how do we want to uh, demonstrate our values? Organizations, I feel, get caught up in the daily business and therefore skip these kind of things. And it just becomes sort of a free-for-all, if you know what I mean, if that makes sense. Uh, but if you really yeah, think so about what, un- what's... unconscious, you know, to like what's happening because they're so, so yeah. the tactical stuff. I think so, and especially with, with scaling where you see a disconnection between the higher management and, and the uh, teams doing the work. Um, while there is so much more value in that, not just on the connection level or on the feedback level or the psychological safety, uh, but going into the project management or the product management vacuum as well. Like This is where we want to be as, as, a, as an uh, organization when it comes to our mission and our vision and how does the work of the teams, like the, the sprint goals or the product goals and how does that relate and how do we fill that void? It's the same with the more interpersonal stuff. Now, if as a CEO, taken in the most extreme example, if you can say, you know, I've made mistakes as well. I don't know what's going on. Um, I don't, I would like to have your feedback or this is how I messed up. This is where I would like to get your input and so on. That does so much good on the, the mental health of people in the, in the teams. So coming back to your question, uh, Jeff, sorry for that, for the very elaborate answer. I don't think there it's necessarily a conscious thing, but it's more of a wild growth because of the daily business. Not thinking about what's the culture that we want to, that we want to achieve. A great example of that, I feel, is uh, Dan Price. I'm not sure what the company is that he's, he works for, uh, but setting that financial compensation, basically the same for everyone. So you don't have that the CEO is way above the rest. And, uh, you know, he's, he treats his people like he wants to be treated, not just in a financial position, but same with behavior in general. And I think that's super powerful. Yeah, there there was something you had brought up. Well, a few things that you brought up inside of there. One was the the values conversation, which I of the two of us, I'm the more cynical one. Uh, but like, I, I I always feel like those values conversations at big companies are just bullshit. Like, you maybe you hear about them on day one when you're going through the hiring or the the onboarding process, um, and then maybe at a quarterly staff meeting, somebody will bring it out because hey, these are our company values. But that, like you never hear about them in any way, shape or form. Um, and, and so they, they really just become meaningless at that point. <clears throat> but something else you had said inside of there is while I appreciate the, the humility and the humbleness of a, a leader coming out and saying, Hey, I want your feedback. I, I would love to, you know, I've, I've made mistakes and blah, blah, blah. Unless they're telling you how to provide that feedback. I find it very disingenuous, right? Like, if you're the CEO or you're the leader of a company and it has more than 50 people inside of it. So let's say it's, it's a typical 250 person organization. Like, what are you supposed to do? Like send an email over to the CEO? Is there a Slack channel sent up? Is it carrier pigeon? Like what, how are we supposed to actually engage in conversation? Um, and I'm willing to bet that that never happens because the door was never opened to actually tell you how to have realistic feedback with each other. Yep. So I, I think it's it's a good first step, but unless you actually have the processes in place, the structure to Jeff, what you were just talking about, like that, that's just so meaningless to me that that's just fluff. <laughs> I think you have to have those structures. And I think another powerful thing you can do is have stories and you, you can't tell a story one time. You have to tell it over and over again. Like certain organizations have certain stories that get told over and over again that kind of like tell you about their culture, tell you about their values. And so if you have a value of courage, tell me about how you live the value. Tell me about how we accelerate that. I had one team that I worked with one time 
and they were really into servant leadership. They went through that. We went through this little workshop and they were like super excited about it. So they took the 12 values of, of servant leadership and every sprint they had is like, that was their like setting the stage to the retro. And it was, um, the servant leader of the sprint. And so the person who was a servant leader in the last sprint of the sprint had to find a story to tell of somebody who lived one of the values, this sprint. And they would tell a story. It'd be like a one paragraph thing. And they put posted on their team wall. And then like over time, they ended up with a bunch of these stories and the people would come and they'd be part of like onboarding them and they'd read these stories. They talk about them. And it just became like more and more of that was lived every day because it's something that we, we told stories about and something we celebrated. And so I think you can do that with almost anything. It's just you got to do it regularly and put a structure in place around that to help you do that. And so those are conscious decisions to like invest in your culture, um, you know, and make the time and space for that, that I think you can do inside of an organization. So you can start small, like it could be one scrum team doing this. It could be, you know, if you're a leader, it could be your team that reports to you. If you're a, a senior manager in some organization, like maybe you have multiple teams and managers doing this so it could be lived many different ways it reminds me i don't know if it it was ever part of the psm one or if it was just another practical that we did during during our training at, at previous jobs but anyway there was this this awesome little um facilitation exercise around just imagining a team that you want to be a part of like what does the day in and day out look like for that team what why are you excited to come into work every day and work with this team? Um, and kind of drawing it back to where we started the conversation with, with psychological safety, like that to me is a very, that, that tactical thing that you were just talking about there, Jeff, is a very practical way of making it feel like not only are we going to welcome other individuals, but we're going to celebrate the things we want to see in each other. And we're going to make it part of our practice to not only highlight these things, but that is literally part of the onboarding process. When you are a new team member coming onto our team, you're going to revisit all these stories of awesomeness that we have had with each other so that we very clearly set the expectation with you. This is what it means to be part of this team. This is what we expect from you as a team member. And this is what you should expect from us as a team member. Um, I think mm -hmm. even that would be a great foundational piece for psychological safety, clearly setting expectations up front and warmly welcoming a new person onto the team. So creating a definition of awesome. There, I love it. A definition of awesome. That's what we need. Let's stick to that. Now, we've been discussing bringing our whole selves as well. What do you, does it mean to you guys to bring your whole selves? Because that seems to be open to interpretation still. So for me, it means that you bring who you're not a different person at home than when you are going to work. Now, you might have a different filter in certain situations and you still got to like say certain things or maybe approach problems in a little different way, but you're the same person. Um, one thing that I do with teams is, I mean, I personally like using disk, but not for like disk being pigeonholed for one thing. It's more like a, it, it's a, it's a language that people can use to say, I agree with this and I don't agree with this, or I would modify this. And it's a way for them to talk about themselves and, in, and inspect themselves with the team and talk about how they want to be treated, how they like to work, things like that, what they favor, what they would like to avoid. And I think that helps a team to really get to know each other and gives them a language for it. So that's one thing. Like, And, and when I do a disc, there's like this uh, adapted versus like uh, how you are at home. And so with those are very, very different then that means you're you're kind of being a different person 
And so um, the one that I use there, like that's just a, I guess it's a a sign that, ooh, something's not right here. Like you're acting drastically different than you would at home. That's probably takes a lot of energy from you. You're probably getting very worn out from work. Um, So just that's one way that, you know, I use that as a know if that's happening. Um, But really bringing your whole self to me is like, you're just, there isn't a different, if somebody, if your friend, a friend meets you from your personal life and a friend from work meet each other, they're meeting the same person. And, um, you know, they, they would, they would recognize that person in, in a neutral context, you know? Um, I don't, I can't recall the book that I'm reading right now, but in the introductory of it, it, it had articulated, um, I'm going to butcher it, but it essentially was talking about two different types of characteristics that you have. You've got the, the characteristics that you put on your resume, and then you've got the characteristics that are going to be spoken of you at your eulogy. Um, and for, for me, it, it really struck a nerve because I was like, you know, what I want to be known for is, you know, if it was on my my tombstone, it would be something like Jeff Molesky cussed a lot, but passionately cared about people. Right. And like, that's who I am. And, you know, I, I, I do speak like a drunken sailor. Right. Like I cuss. It's like three point six cuss words per minute is my average. Right. Um, but I also truly, deeply give a damn about people. And that's what it means for me to be my whole self and bring that into work. All right. Um, and also understand that you can hold more than one perspective in your head at a time. Um, you can say, yeah, Jeff has got a foul mouth, but he's also really good at his job or he really cares about people or whatever, like fill in the blank there. Right. Like people are multifaceted and there can be pros and cons and there are pros and cons to individuals. Let's just accept that. All right. As long as there's more pros than there are cons, get the fuck over it. Okay. Like <laughs> life goes on. We're going to be good. Like, let's let's just do awesome stuff together. Um, let's think about it from like Jeff's perspective. If he spends all his time trying to hold his tongue and not like swear, he's not thinking about your product as the product owner. He's not thinking about how to put position this best in a marketplace. He's putting more and more energy into like that than the, the than not being himself than into like doing the thing you hired him to do. So I think from a value perspective, from an organization's perspective, I want to put people in the best position to succeed. That's what any leader should try to do inside of an organization is create an environment where people are successful and can be successful. And I think when you put certain norms out there, you you know, of like people not being themselves, you're you're creating an environment where they have to do too much thinking on the simple things, you know? Yeah. I, one of the the latest examples where I feel that people were actually able to bring their whole selves to me was the Scrum.org face-to-face. And I don't want to glorify the, the Scrum.org community in general because I do that quite a bit already. Uh, but one of those things that I noticed, we've never met uh, Mr. Bubbles. And the same with Chad and Sabrina and every, every basically anyone who was there. Everything went smooth from the get-go. No holding back, no nothing. What's that thing that made that made that community or that that possibility to bring yourself without any fear of repercussions? And beer does know. help. I, part but- it, I mean, yeah, it, yeah. I think um, part of it is you know the people that are in the community are kind of been vetted and they all have certain similar values and we've had to all go through a similar role. So walking in, everybody inside of that room, you know they've gone through a certain process. You you know they know what they're talking about from a technical standpoint. Like they're very, very they're very good at whatever you know from an agile Scrum perspective. They know their stuff. 
we don't have to even debate that or think about that. And so now it's like, what's the problem that you want to solve? Like, what's the biggest thing? How could I help you with that? How could you help me with my problems? And it just, I don't know, we come, maybe we come to, to that face to face with a mentality of like, I want to give and get help. And um, I think it's just maybe who we are as a community, but I don't know how you, I think it's part of it is shared values and, um, you know, we have a shared goal. And so yeah. I think that helps a lot. Um, and, and maybe there's just, I don't know, for whatever reason, there is built-in trust. Like, I just feel like anytime I run into somebody, if they told me they're a PSD, I, there's an interest of trust. I know, like, we're we're on a, on a certain level of, like, we, we agree on certain baseline things. And so I think that makes a difference. Isn't that, shouldn't that be the same thing in, in any organization? I mean, you go through the same process as well. You, you get through the same hiring process. You go through the same onboarding, mostly. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, but most on like hiring processes are shit. Like at, at least at least here. I, I don't I don't know, you know, on in your end of the world, but here they're they're garbage um most of the time. So like if your if your intake process is garbage, like expect garbage in on the other side of that process. So I, I don't know if we necessarily do that good of a job holistically. Um, in corporate America of actually hiring for purpose, hiring for, for common alignment, hiring for values, et cetera. Yeah. I think we talk about it a lot, but we don't do a very good job of implementing it. That goes sort of back to my comment on thinking about the culture that you want to have. And it's the same with the hiring process. I personally, what I see also in, in corporate America, especially in corporate America, that there's a huge disconnection between human resources and my absolute hate for the term human resources and people in the team who are actually involved in the hiring process. Do you Jeff fit into our team in our micro culture? That's something that HR or the hiring manager will never know because you're not part of the team. People in the team should be making those kind of decisions, not someone who's completely disconnected from the actual work. Yeah. And to exactly that point, I think that's the exception versus the rule, right? It's the exception that you're actually interviewing with the team that you're going to be a part of. It's an exception that you're actually getting to talk and know how they operate and what that culture is like. Um, you know, it, it's more of the rule that, hey, we're going to have a, a phone screen to make sure you're not a full fucking idiot. Um, cool. <laughs> you can move on to the next step where you're going to talk with one or two of the the managers there. And then maybe a next one is with a director or something like that. And it totally bypasses any of the people that are actually doing the work, Right. Um, so it completely sidesteps what you would expect that process to be like. Now, it, again, broad, broad strokes here that, that I'm painting, but there are places that do things very differently. Um, and in fact, you know, we, Jeff and I went out to Menlo um, a number of years ago and got to see their hiring practice. When I was with Health Champion, we had something very similar where, you know, we actually paid somebody to come in part of the interview process. They came in for a day and they worked with the team. If they were an engineer, they were writing code. If they were a quality engineer, they were testing and they got paid for that day. It wasn't like some unpaid internship. Like we actually paid them for their time because it was valuable. We wanted to see how they performed. We wanted to see how they worked with the team. Um, and then a decision was made. So, yeah, there's absolutely places that are experimenting with other ways of doing it. But again, that's that seems like the exception to the rule. Same thing, by the way, for me, for the annual reviews and the appraisal and these kind of things. It's so disconnected from psychological safety or bringing your whole self to work. I mean... In, in, in Agile and in Scrum, we practice continuous inspection adaptation. But if you only look back once a year, like this is what you've done and that's what you're going to get your bonus for. I know. No opportunities anymore to improve whatsoever. 
Yeah, I I think that there's a big opportunity missed there, right? Like, what if you did it? So we do it annually now. What if we just did something a little shorter, right? Like we used to do half annual releases when we built products. You know, like we used to have Windows 98 and Windows 2000, and maybe it was every two years we would do these things. And I guess companies have done that too, where it's like, oh, it's a tough year. We're just going to skip that, you know, that part of the year, You're not give anybody any raises for a year. But like now, we where it's more continuous. But could one step be quarterly? Like, what if you just did quarterly? Think about that, people out there. Like, what if every quarter there was some type of feedback mechanism where it's like, hey, did we hit our goals? Did we make progress towards them? What do you think? Or we have this much budget for this now, depending on what happened. Uh, we have a, a quarter has gone by. You worked with this team for a quarter. Hey, maybe we should decide as a team where that money gets distributed. I think that'd be a great idea. Give the money to the team. Let them figure out how, how it gets distributed. Also give them the transparency of what everybody else makes. I mean, it very easily could be like there could be a big salary um, discrepancy. At least that happens a lot here in the U.S. with, you know, certain minorities and sometimes women. Like, like they don't like to talk about it, but it does happen. And so, like, making sure. that transparent, like, the team will, re- re- will correct that. I guarantee they will if they see it. Um, so... Um, I, those are things I would be thinking about is how do you have shorter term goals? Cause then you can see the benefit and you realize that faster and people will work harder towards it. It's just like exercise or working out or anything like you, that you do like that. Like, I mean, if you don't, if you didn't see the benefits for a year, how, how would you stay with it? No, like you need to see them over a few weeks, like some small benefit or you, what you won't keep doing it. So, um, I think the shorter, um, you know, the feedback loops we can have there, the better at this point. What, one quick thing I would, would want to add in there. Again, I, I don't have kids because I'm allergic. Um, but like, if, if I did have a kid, I cannot for a, a moment in a, imagine this scenario. Like, little Johnny, it's his eighth birthday. And, you know, you, you pull up a seat and he's like, all right, Johnny, let's review the last year of accomplishments that you did. <laughs> all right. So on day 36, you learned how to ride a bicycle. And that was really good. On day 110, you uh, you got all your chores done. And like... That just sounds so stupid when you lay it out like that. No, you you recognize accomplishments in the moment and you reward accomplishments at that time, right? Like why I, – I just – again, I'm the cynical one. Like I just can't imagine how somebody was like, you know what? Let's just wait a year. And realistically what happens is like everybody busts their ass for like the month leading up to it. It's like kids during Christmas, right? Like that's when all the chores get done because they want to be on the good list because Santa's watching. But never mind the ele- the other 11 months of the year when Santa was like out, out of focus, right? Yeah, sure. Like it just seems so stupid when you look at this stuff. But like that's the way it is. And, and go, back to, go back to 2020, January 2020. I created my whole year plan. COVID was not one of those. Yeah, it fucked over my entire plan. Yep. yep. Not, not only yours, a few, few other hundred million people. <laughs> a couple of other people give or, give might have been, they may have been affected as well. So morale of the, of the story, we got to eradicate Taylorism. Well, I won't say eradicate. I just say that there's a time and a place for certain things, right? We have a lot to we have a lot of things in this world right now because of Taylorism, right? Like we have a sure. lot of material things. It's really progressed the way things have worked over the last hundred years. Right? We made some huge technology advances, but different types of work require, um, require different types of management, different types of leadership, different types of organization. And so best practices work when you're building something that's very repeatable. But when you're building things that are not repeatable, then we have to think about different ways of working. 
And uh, they have to be more emergent practices. We have to really embrace things that will lead to innovation. And, and control is not something that leads to innovation. Control leads to a certain standard of quality things being reproduced a certain way. But that's not what you want. A lot of times in product development, we want innovation. Uh, that's the thing where you're going to get the 100x, you know, return on something. So, um, I don't know, create an environment that allows for that, I think, is is definitely a challenge. But it's, and it's very different um, than what, you know, maybe a Tayloristic approach um, would have you do. Sure. It was a very much exaggerated, of course. Everything has I know, its I know. place. I know. I give you a hard time. I'm just like, everybody bashes the tailorism from an agile community standpoint. I'm like, well, it's not all bad. Like, there is, we had, did get some pros from it, you know? So. Oh, no, there are no best practices in Scrum and Agile. Hey, guys, looking at the time, unfortunately. I'm, all good, brother. I'm out. Yeah. It was great. Uh, it was great chatting with you. Thanks for having us on the podcast. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Likewise. Thank you for listening to the Agile Wire. We are consistently inspecting and adapting ourselves. We would appreciate feedback at feedback at theagilewire.com or on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play Store. See you next time.